Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you so much, Dr. Danny Aiken. And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I am delighted to be back here once again at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. First time I came to this beautiful campus was 1977, before a lot of you were born, I know. I was a young man myself. And many, many times I've been back to do different things. I love this seminary. You know how compatible I think I am with your school when the last two associate deans at Beeson came from this school. And they're wonderful folks. What you're doing, your vision for the world, for missions, for sending the gospel to the farthest corners of the world where every human being is alive and breathing. They need to hear about Jesus. That's the heart of this school. And I appreciate it so much. And I'm honored to be here to talk with you today about the great reformation of the 16th century. So today it'll be a little bit of an overview of the reformation seen through the lens of Martin Luther. And particularly focused a little bit later in the lecture, I want to take you into a classroom when Luther was actually lecturing. What was he like? What was it like to sit there and take notes? Well, we have some of those notes students took when he was lecturing on the book of Romans. I'm going to talk about that. Then tomorrow, I want to step back a little bit. And uh, tomorrow's going to be the question, what did the reformers think they were doing? You can study the Reformation all kinds of ways, political, social, economic history, cultural analysis, on and on. They're all good ways to study the Reformation. We need all the knowledge we can get about it. But sometimes we forget to ask ourselves, what did these people think they were doing? What did they want to accomplish? What made them tick? And that's tomorrow. But today I want to begin with Martin Luther. I want to begin with looking at really the role of the Bible in his developing theology that led him finally to that great event that we celebrate on October the 31st, 1517, 500 years ago when he posted his 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg. Well, that's, how, that's what I'm going to do, so let's pray that God will help me do it and do it well and do it accurately. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the precious word of God, for its truth, its power, its ability to speak to the innermost needs of our hearts and lives today. Lord, thank you for schools like Southeastern that are faithful to the Word of God and have a vision and a burden for the gospel going into all the world. Lord, we know we're standing on the shoulders of some giants when we try to carry out the Great Commission today. Help us today as we look back in history at a period of time that was so important for all of us. Give me the words to say. And give us all open hearts and minds to hear and to believe once again the good news. Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. I pray this in his name. Amen. You know, the Reformation took place at a juncture in history. You can think of it as a head-on collision. Two cars crashing into one another. Debris everywhere. The two cars were the Middle Ages and modern times. The Reformation happened at the juncture between the medieval and the early modern period of history. A lot of things were happening in the world at that time. It was a dynamic time of change, of transition, of innovation. It was an age of discovery and exploration. Luther was only nine years old when Christopher Columbus set sail from Sevilla, Spain and ended up discovering a whole new hemisphere, us. Magellan was sailing around the world when Luther stood 
before the Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms and said, Here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. Well, Magellan that very month was in the Philippines, far away on the other side of the world, in the Pacific Ocean. It was an age of exploration, of discovery. One of the things that made that possible was the discovery of the mariner's compass so that ships could sail out onto the great oceans of the world and not completely get lost, find their way with the help of the stars and the compass to new lands. Other inventions that were happening was um, uh, the telescope. Copernicus, Galileo, astronomers had discovered a whole new way of understanding a heliocentric universe, very different from what people had thought for over a thousand years. The earth was at the center of everything. They discovered otherwise. And then along comes the telescope and they can actually see what they have learned. It's an amazing, exciting age of discovery, of invention, of new things in, in, in culture. The age we call the Renaissance. That's a French word meaning new birth, coming to life again. And that's what was happening in culture, in art, in architecture. The names of uh, Michelangelo, Raphael. Leonardo da Vinci, the great works of art that we still stand amazed when we look at them today. All this was in play on the eve of the Reformation. It was an exciting time in which to be alive. But you know, it was also a a dangerous and a scary time in which to be alive. Like our own world, we have lots of Wonderful inventions and discoveries as well that we don't even think about. Like, for example, anesthesia. People that want to live back in the good old days before anesthesia, not me. No. Uh, It's an exciting time for us to be alive too in many ways, but it's also a scary and a dangerous world. And so was the age of the Reformation. One of those new inventions I didn't mention yet but it was really important to what happened. Gunpowder. Yeah. You know, when you did war in the Middle Ages, you went out on a big field of battle and you had the knights and the soldiers and they had arrows and bows. And, but now gunpowder. Oh, that elevates the savagery, the violence, the death count. That was new in the age of the Reformation. It was an age of violence. It was an age of plague, disease, death on a mass scale. The bubonic plague, the Black Death, they called it, swept away one-third of the human population in the 14th century. This was the world in which Martin Luther was born in 1483. There were Two other inventions I want to mention are two other movements that greatly impacted Luther. One was the invention of the printing press. In the Middle Ages, when you wanted to have a book, you know, you went to a a scriptorium, which was usually in a monastery. And there, monks would work copying line by line, page by page, a whole book of the Bible. Took them uh, over a year to make a complete Bible, working that laborious, difficult, painful way. It was very expensive. You know, some people t- sometimes talk about in the Middle Ages, the Bible was chained. So to keep uh, people from reading it, well, it was chained. But not to keep people from reading it, it was chained to keep them from stealing it. Because the Bible was a very expensive book. And so they chained it so you'd have to go there and read it and not carry it away. Well, now all that is completely transformed in 1455 when the first printed book in the history of the world took place in the little town of Mainz on the Rhine River in Germany, Johannes Gutenberg. It was the Bible, a Latin Bible, the Vulgate Bible in 1455. And soon what had taken over a year to produce could be produced in a matter of weeks, days. Not just one copy, but many, many hundreds, thousands of copies. What in our world the internet is, computers are, the printing press was in Luther's world. It was a revolution in information technology, in communications, and it changed everything. 
Well, this is all the background of the Reformation. I think it's important to keep those things in mind uh, because it's going to impact Martin Luther in many different ways. Now, Luther's life is interesting. It's interesting to read about. It's interesting to tell about because uh, it's punctuated with dramatic events, turning points. Now, you know, there's some people you can know their theology without knowing much at all about their life. I think Thomas Aquinas is that way. You, you can read the Summa Theologica. You can be well-versed in all of his ideas and how he presented his thoughts and, and not know anything about who he was, where he came from. Not so with Martin Luther. Luther, theology and biography are intertwined. And his life is interesting because of these dramatic events that turned his life around and sent it spinning in a new direction. Well, one of those happened in 1505. He had been born in 1483 in the town of Eisleben, a part of Germany called Saxony. His father was a miner. And so uh, Luther was born there in 1483. And his father, who was doing pretty well in the mining business, he was no longer working down in the pits. He had become an administrator, a manager of the mines. We would say maybe middle class, I don't know. And so he had ambitions for his sons. You know, parents always want their children to do better than they have, to make more money than they had so they can support them in their old age. That's what Luther's father wanted. So he said, young man, I want you to go to law school and become a lawyer. Luther's father had some smarts. He knew that lawyers made more than preachers, even back then, even back then. Well, that Luther... Uh, obedient to his father, decided he will do that. So he enrolls in law school at the University of Erfurt. Erfurt was one of the oldest universities north of the Alps, a very famous and well-respected university. And uh, Martin Luther studies law. Uh, he's going to become a lawyer. And then one of these turning points happens. He's coming back home. He had been away, coming back to Erfurt from his home, when suddenly out in the middle of a field, he is struck down in a thunderstorm. I used to read this story. I said, thunderstorms? In Alabama, we have thunderstorms every other day. No big deal. We even have tornadoes sometimes. Until a few years ago, I was driving through the state of Indiana, a lot of flat cornfields, but I was caught in a thunderstorm. Now, I was in a car. Luther was walking. I was in a car, but I thought I was going to die. I mean, that was one of the most ferocious storms I've ever been a part of. I had to pull over and pray. You know, you, there are two places I pray, in thunderstorms and airplanes. And, and I started to pray, and, 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 and I, I'm here because God saved my life. But it was, a, it was a terrible event. Now, Luther was caught in one of those without any protection. He thought he was going to die. And he cries out, Saint Anna, help me, I will become a monk. Now, why did he call on St. Anna? Who was she? Well, people believe that Anna, St. Anna, was the mother of the Virgin Mary. In other words, Jesus' grandmother. And there was a strong devotion to Anna in that part of Saxony. She was a special patron saint of the miners, the silver miners. Luther's father was a miner. He had seen little statuettes of her in his home from the time he was a boy. So impulsively, he calls out to her, St. Anna, help me, I'll become a monk. Nobody expected him to fulfill that vow. It was made under duress. God will understand, they said. His father was really against it. But nonetheless, Luther entered the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt in 1505. That summer, July of 1505, he becomes an Augustinian monk. And he's seeking to find an answer to two questions, burning questions. The first question was this. Where can I find a gracious God? How can I know that God is for me, not against me? What can I do to please God, to satisfy God, to lay some claim upon God? What if I'd been killed in that thunderstorm? What if I'd had to appear before God at the judgment? And so he begins to follow the monastic routine, uh, doing all of the disciplines, the penitential disciplines, fasting, going without food, going without sleep. On and on and on, beating himself with a, with a whip, never able to find peace with God. He later on said, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. He did this, he did that, no peace could be found. 
But then there was another question that swept over him. Not only where can I find a gracious God, but how can I know the real God? How can I know that the God they tell me about is the true God? Very important question in Martin Luther's life. Now, he was blessed to have in the monastery a, a mentor, a father and God figure. His name was Johann von Staupitz. He was also Luther's superior in the Augustinian monastery. So he was sort of in charge of what we might call Luther's discipleship, Luther's spiritual formation. And he met with him often, not only to hear his confessions, but also to give him counsel and advice. And uh, one of the things he said to Luther is, man, you're making this too hard. All you've got to do is love God. You know, I think Staupitz probably said to Luther what you would say to somebody, or I would say to somebody that came to us with all those spiritual, man, you're just making this too hard. You can never work enough. You can just, just love God. Don't worry about all this other stuff. That's what we would say. That's what Staupitz said. Luther responded, love God, I hate him. Because Luther saw God as an angry judge consigning men and women, sheep and goats, to his right and his left, to heaven, to hell. He saw Christ as a judge sitting on a rainbow. That's the way Michelangelo painted him on the Sistine Chapel. You can go there and see it today. Some of you have been there in the Vatican. You can see the Sistine Chapel, that beautiful painting of the Last Judgment. There's Jesus sitting on a rainbow, a sword coming out of his mouth. People going to heaven, people going to hell. He's the judge on the rainbow. That's how Luther saw him. And Staupitz said to him one day sitting under a pear tree, Luther, I think you ought to go over there to the university and get a doctorate in Bible and become a professor in the seminary. Now here's a young man on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And his, his mentor says, you ought to become a professor in the seminary. Oh, no, says Luther. That would kill me. Well, if it kills you, said Staupitz, that's okay. God has lots of things for clever people like you to do in heaven. Go ahead and do it anyway. Now, you see, uh, Luther was a monk, and monks take a vow. A vow of poverty, a vow of celibacy, and a vow of obedience. So he had to do what he was told. And he went over to the seminary, to the university, and eventually he did earn a doctorate in Bible. He became doctor in Biblia. That was the correct title for what Luther was for the rest of his life. And he never got that. October 1512, he was awarded his doctorate in the Bible. And later on, when people would come to him and say, Who are you, a monk? Who are you to go against... 1,500 years of church tradition. Who are you to challenge the Pope and the church? He would always go back to the fact that he had been called and set apart as a doctor of the Bible, a teacher of the Bible, and he had taken another vow when he became a doctor of the Bible. And that was to teach purely and truly the Holy Scriptures. This is how Luther defended his right to challenge the church. It was on the basis of the written word of God and the fact he had been appointed as a teacher of it. He kept coming back to that. In fact, you know, he later on renounced his monastic vows. He, he renounced the vow of celibacy uh, when he married Katie, a runaway nun. They established the first Protestant parsonage. He's no longer celibate after that. He begins to have kids one after the other. You can't be celibate and have kids, I don't think. Uh, Luther, Luther was not celibate after he married Katie. They had a whole brood of kids. He also uh, renounced the vow of poverty. He became the owner of what was called the Black Cloister. That's the, that was the Augustinian monastery. It became Luther and Katie's home where they had all these children and invited guests to come and live with them and stay with them. And the guests would write down Luther's after-dinner talks and we have some of those things that have survived. He gave up poverty. But the one vow he never renounced was the vow he took when he became a doctor in Biblia. And that was to teach the word of God purely and truly. And he never, ever gave that up. In fact, one time he said, when the Lord Jesus comes back at the end of the age, he's going to step out on a cloud and he's going to say, Dr. Martinez, come forth. 
Even Jesus will call him doctor at the end of the world. Now, what does a doctor in Biblia do at the University of Wittenberg in the early years of the 16th century? Well, he begins to teach the Bible. And we have some of Luther's earliest writings that have come down to us are from this period of his life when he is teaching the Scriptures. He started with the Psalms, the Dictata Super Psalterium, the, the his uh, lecture notes on the Psalms. They've been translated now into English. You can get them in the Luther Works edition and read them for yourself. Uh, you can begin to see when you read his lecture notes on the Psalms that he's growing. It's, it's like a mind opening. He's digging deeply into scholastic theology. Yes, that's, that's what he had been trained in, but he's growing beyond it the closer he comes to the text of the Scriptures. And Psalm 22 in particular was a very important text for Martin Luther. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me, so far from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry to you by day and you do not hear by night. I am not silent. I am a worm and not a man. The whole Psalm 22. And he realized these were the very words Jesus had quoted on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How could that be? Jesus forsaken? That's the way I feel. I thought I was the only one. But Jesus was forsaken too. It could only be, Luther said, that on that cross something happened. He who was the sinless, perfect, eternal Son of God become incarnate on that cross took my place, suffered my death, paid my debt, and felt the way I feel. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's not quite there yet. And it's a big debate as to exactly when and where in Luther's life he comes to a full, mature understanding of the grace of God in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Some scholars put it as early as when he started lecturing on the Psalms, 1512, 1513. Others put it as late after the indulgence controversy, 1518, 1519, almost on the verge of his excommunication. Well, I myself have thought about this a lot, and I have, I have a proposal for you today. It's just a suggestion. You don't have to believe it. It's true, but you can... <laughs> I think it's better not to think of one punctiliar event when it all happened suddenly, but rather to think of this as a process in Luther's own mind as he learned and studied and grew deeper in the Word of God. He began to see new things about the grace of God and about justification by faith alone. Now, I'm not saying there was no dramatic tower experience. I think there were several probably. But Luther himself put it this way. Non intelligendo, non legendo, out speculando, vivendo imo moriando, et damnando fit theologus. If you can translate that, you get an A+. Plus. It's better in Latin. That's why I gave it. That's why Luther wrote it. What it means is this. It's not by understanding intelligendo. It's not by just reading Legendo. It's not by speculating, speculando. None of those things that makes really one a theologian. Rather, is living, dying, and being damned that makes one a theologian. That's one of the great statements of Martin Luther. He later said, I did not learn my theology all at once, but I had to search after it where my temptations led me. Now, I'm going to stop for a minute and talk about this word temptations. That's how we translate it. The German word is anfechtungen. Latin is tentatio. Yeah, temptation is a possible way to translate that word, but it's too weak a translation. It doesn't do justice to what was going on in Luther's heart and mind as he plowed into the text of Scripture. What are anfechtungen? Right in the middle of that big German word is a smaller German word, vector. 
A fector is a fencer. You know what fencing is? I guess it's a sport in some universities, but you, somebody puts on a suit and they give them a sword and they put on a visor over your eyes and they try to stab you. That's a fencer. Well, Anfechtungen is about somebody trying to stab you. It's about somebody in combat with you, trying to kill you. This is how Luther described his spiritual struggles. Anfechtungen. Somebody in conflict, in combat, come against you. And who is that somebody? Well, for Luther, it's the devil. The devil is real for Luther. Not just a figment of your imagination, not just a little literary device uh, to talk about the dark side of your human nature. No, there is a real devil. 1 Peter 5.8 says, The devil, your adversary, is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. Luther knew that firsthand. These onfectungen, these struggles, searching deeper and deeper and always in combat with the evil one. If you've never struggled, if you've never known that combat, I doubt seriously you have plummeted the depths of the scriptures. Luther makes a big point about that. So he's doing that in the Psalms. And then when he finishes the Psalms, he he turns to Romans. And I want to spend a little more time with Luther's lectures on Romans. Well, it's an interesting story about these lectures. For one thing, They were lost for over 400 years. That's right. We knew Luther had given them because uh, he was, uh, we have notes from the students who sat in his class and heard him lecture and took down notes. So we knew that Luther had given them, but they were not read for over 400 years by what James Atkinson, a great Reformation scholar in Great Britain, has called one of the freaks of historical accident. The manuscript of Luther's lectures on Romans was passed down to his children, to his son, Dr. Paul Luther, who actually was a physical, a physician, a doctor who cared for the elector of Saxony. Uh, He had them bound in leather and stamped in gold, uh, but, but he didn't keep them. And after his death, they went into somebody else's hands and they just got lost in history until... A little over 100 years ago, in the late 19th century, somebody found this long-lost manuscript of Luther's lectures on Romans. Guess where they found them? In the library. Hidden, yeah, hidden away, just not cataloged right. You'll never know what you might find in a library. Hidden away. They found Luther's lectures on Romans. Uh, His name was Johannes Victor, the paleographer who found them. They were transcribed they were translated now into English you can you can you can buy a whole book with Luther's lectures on Romans but for over 400 years they were not known why why were they not uh, people more interested in finding them well for one thing Luther himself did not want to preserve them Luther was not big in preserving any of his books except one or two he loved his commentary on Galatians that was his favorite book he said he called it my Katie von Bora That was his wife. He called Galatians, my Katie von Bora. But apart from that, the rest of my work, it's not so important. The Bible, the Bible was important. Luther's translation of the Bible into German, he thought would change the world if people would read it. That was really important. But Romans, these other books were not so important. There was another reason they weren't kept, and that's because Luther did not continue to lecture on Romans. As far as we know, it's the only time he ever lectured on Romans was 1515, 1516. Why? Well, because they hired a young whippersnapper scholar from Tübingen named Philip Melanchthon, who was one of the great Greek scholars of the age, became Luther's associate and his successor in Wittenberg. And Melanchthon's job was to lecture on Romans and the rest of Paul, and in fact, the whole New Testament. Luther became mainly a lecturer on the Old Testament. Luther was an Old Testament professor, we would say today, and most of his commentaries that have survived are Old Testament like his Genesis, has 10 volumes on Genesis written during the last decade of his life. He left Romans for Philip Melanchthon to do. But it doesn't mean that Romans for him was not important or that the message of Romans was lost or downplayed, not at all. 
When he translated the Bible into German in the New Testament in 1522, he wrote a preface to Paul's letter to the Romans, and it begins this way. This letter, Romans, is the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is so valuable that every Christian should know it by heart, memorize each word, and use it every day as if it were their soul's daily bread. We cannot read it through too often or meditate on it too much. The more we engage with it, the more precious it becomes, and the sweeter, the sweeter it tastes. That's how much he thought about Romans. You ought to memorize it, he said. You ought to meditate on it day and night. You ought to go to bed with it and wake up with it in the morning. Romans, he couldn't say too much about it even though he didn't lecture on it in the classroom anymore. But let's go back to that time now when he was lecturing on Romans and holding forth in the classroom in Wittenberg. What, what was it like to be a student in Luther's classroom? Well, um, we, we know because we have a student who describes him to us. You know what time he lectured? 6 a.m. 6 a.m., and the student said, oh, it was like hearing an angel talk. He would go forth with such mellifluous melody, and his voice was so great, it could go soft, it could go hard. This amazing description of Luther, the lecturer. It takes a pretty good lecture to hold somebody's attention at 6 o'clock in the morning, even if you're Luther, and even if you're in the 16th century. But we have these students who are taking down his notes. He had the local printer in Wittenberg, a man named John Grunenberg, not Gutenberg, but similar, Grunenberg, to actually print a copy of the book of Romans, the Latin text, with large spaces in between, kind of an interlinear uh, edition of the book of Romans. And as Luther would lecture along, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the students would be writing down his comments, his his commentary on the book of Romans, and some of these have come down to us as well. Two things I want to say about how Luther was approaching Romans, and then I want to look at some of the, the themes in his uh, letter to the Romans. The first thing I want to say is that there was a hermeneutical shift in Luther's thinking during these years. He comes to appropriate what uh, one of my great teachers, Heiko Obermann, called a theological grammar of the scriptures. Uh, what does he mean by that? Well, the first thing he meant by that was that there was a hermeneutical shift toward a dynamic and Christocentric reading of the scriptures. Jesus Christ becomes the fulcrum around which everything in the Bible revolves, Old and New Testament. Now, recently in evangelical circles, biblical study circles, there's developed something we call the theological interpretation of Scripture, which is very similar in a way. I think it's learning from Luther, a few little different twists along the way. But it's a way of understanding the Bible as an interconnected canon, a whole. And so that Jesus Christ becomes the way, the hermeneutical principle through which all of the Bible makes sense. And after all, it is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible. You can't just deracinate Jesus Christ from the process of inspiration, Old as well as New Testament. Jesus himself said, didn't he, in the Gospel of John, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify, which speak, which witness of me. Or when Jesus was walking along the road to Emmaus with the disciples in Luke 24, he opens the scriptures and begins to expound what the prophets and the Psalms are saying about me. And so this was something Luther got over against, I think, a lot of the tradition that had gone before him. It's going back to a certain way of reading the Bible that was, that was there in the early church and people like Augustine, to some extent Chrysostom, but it was also, of course, there in the New Testament itself. And Luther discovers this and brings it out and dusts it off and holds it as an important principle for when you're studying the Bible. What does it say about Jesus Christ? What does it teach you? about the Son of God, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. And then the second point he wants to make is what I would call the triumph of a biblical theology over against scholastic methods and assumptions. 
Now, that's particularly how theology was done prior to the Reformation in the medieval Middle Ages. It was through the lens of Aristotle. And Aristotle is interested in formal causes, efficient causes. Aristotle's interested in how you dissect a certain event or purpose or principle. And Luther says, uh, this could not get you very far to the heart of the gospel. What you need to do is to go back to the Bible itself and interpret the Bible in the best, in the best way, linguistic way possible. Now, one of the things that's happening at this very time in biblical studies is that the Bible is being rediscovered in the original languages, Greek and uh, Hebrew. You know, the Bible was lost to the West in Greek for a thousand years. People didn't know Greek. They didn't study Greek. And they didn't have the New Testament in Greek. They all read it in the Latin Vulgate. Even so great a medieval theologian as Thomas Aquinas did not know how to read the New Testament in Greek. Hard to believe, but it's true. And then with the fall of Constantinople in 1453, there's an influx of Greek scholars bringing with them Greek manuscripts and a guy named Desiderius Erasmus who's not my favorite reformer, but I do have to say we owe him a great debt because it was Erasmus who began to collate all of these Greek manuscripts and in 1516 published the first ever critical edition of the Greek New Testament. Now, I know I haven't asked Dr. Aiken this, but I I can almost guarantee you it's true. You have to do Greek in this seminary. And why do you have to do that? And how do you do it? Well, you do it because... In this period of the Reformation, the Greek New Testament as well as the Hebrew Old Testament came to the fore again. And Luther says we need to go back to those original sources, ad fontes, back to the sources. Because we need to understand the Bible from the Bible. We need to take our principles of theology from the written word of God in Scripture. And not from, as Luther would say, a pagan philosopher, uh, Aristotle. He was pagan because he lived before Jesus. He never heard about him. What else could he have been? But Luther is saying, you know, this is alien. This is, this is foreign to what the New Testament itself is about. Well, uh, so one of the things that happens that almost nobody talks about when they talk about Luther and his great discovery of justification by faith alone is the fact that this really happened in the context initially of a curricular revision. Now, If you're a member of the faculty, you probably know what I'm talking about. Every now and then, faculties get together and they say, well, what are we teaching? How many hours of this? How many hours of that? We just went through a curricular revision at uh, Beeson Divinity. It's a painful thing. You know, we wanted to reduce the number of our hours in our MDiv degree. Uh, we were, the, I think, about the highest in the whole association of theological schools. We wanted to chop off five or six hours and get it back down in the stratosphere where most schools are. And so we all agreed we wanted to do it, but nobody wanted to give up anything. So there's a lot of blood on the floor after a faculty meeting. Well, they went through that process at the University of Wittenberg, and Luther was a leader in it. And one of the things Luther wanted to do was to bring back the languages and bring back the study of Scripture historically. So history was a new discipline at that time, as well as Greek and Hebrew. And these things began to take front and center in the curricular revision. This was happening exactly at the same time that Luther was lecturing on the book of Romans. Now let's go into that classroom and listen to him for a few minutes. What is he talking about? How is he interpreting Romans? Well, there's a great deal about sin in the book of Romans. Have you ever noticed that? And Luther delves into this whole question of sin. Uh, He wants to magnify sin, as Paul is doing, establish sin, as Paul is doing in Romans, he said. Luther's reading of the human situation disallowed the kind of watered-down, attenuated doctrine of original sin that had come to prevail in the nominalist soteriology of the late Middle Ages. Now, everybody accepted sin. It's in the Bible, right? We hadn't gotten to the point where people are taking their scissors and cutting certain verses out. You've got to deal with it. But they interpreted it down. So what is original sin? in late medieval and even going back to Anselm. What is original sin? Well, it's the absence of original righteousness. Something is missing. Something is lacking. 
Sin is privation. It is deprivation. Adam lost that original standing he enjoyed with God before the fall. That's no longer there. The human will has been weakened. It's been impaired. It's a serious problem, but it's a problem you can deal with in medieval theology through the sacrament of baptism, through the penitential Eucharistic channels of sacramental grace. It can be repaired. Well, for Luther, this view of sin is totally inadequate. Original sin is not merely the privation of a quality in the will. It's not merely the loss of light in the intellect or strength in the memory. But in a word, it is the loss of all uprightness and the power of all our faculties of body and soul of the whole inner and outer man. He has a term to describe this. He didn't exactly invent this term. He got it from St. Augustine, but he intensifies it. Augustine used this word in Latin, incurvatus, which means like a, a spring coiled in, curved in on itself. Well, Augustine had talked about the effect of sin making us curve downward toward the earth, toward the creaturely. Luther intensifies that image. He keeps the word incurvatus, but he adds incurvatus in se. We are turned in on ourselves at the deepest level of what it means to be a human being. We are bent, distorted, and therefore out of favor with God because of the wickedness that is boiling up inside our heart. One of the verses Luther appeals to is the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17 and verse 9. The heart of man is crooked, crooked and inscrutable. Who can know it? That is, the heart is so curved in upon itself that no one, whoever you are, whatever you do, however holy or righteous you might be by your own efforts, you can never truly know yourself because you're curved in on yourself. One of the verses in the Psalms that really grabbed Luther, he kept coming back to this again and again and again, was Psalm 19:12. Who can discern his errors? Clear thou me from my hidden faults, my secret sins. This was one of Luther's problem in the confessional when, when he would go to Staupitz and confess all his sins and pour it all out and not ever get satisfaction because he wondered, have I remembered every sin I have ever committed? Uh, his problem was not whether his sins were big sins or little sins. His problem was, have I confessed every sin? Is the slate completely clean? And if not, how can God be pleased with me? What about the sins... I committed three weeks ago and I forgot to confess them. Or what about the sins I commit when I'm asleep? You know, Sigmund Freud would come along about 400 or 500 years later with this idea that there is more to the human psyche, more to the human personality than what you can just think about in your conscious mind. Freud had names for this and Freud was, of course, an atheist, he didn't believe in God, but he, he had enough sense to know that the human being is complex and there's a deep darkness inside human beings. And Luther saw that too, 400 years before Sigmund Freud ever did. The sins we cannot remember. How are we going to be forgiven for those sins if we can't even remember to confess them? That bothered him. When he read Romans, he understood Paul is saying, the heart of man is desperately wicked. We can't even know it ourselves. We need God to know it. We need a Savior with a great power to redeem us. Now, let me just make a little side comment here. The side comment is this. If you have a shallow view of sin, if you think sin is just a weakness, a deprivation, something missing, if you think sin is only skin deep, a little band-aid, fix it up. If you think sin is something you can overcome by yourself, you go take a seminar, you do this, you do that, you're okay. If that's your view of sin, then you don't need a very strong doctrine of grace. You can be a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian. 
Luther understood that sin was deep, deeply rooted in our soul. And when you understand sin, not just as something missing, but as a virulent volcano, the Latin word is concupiscentia, concupiscence, which just doesn't refer to sexual sin, but it refers to this desire, this lust for power that consumes our lives day in and day out. Then you know you need a strong Savior. Then you know you need a great doctrine of grace that can reach down and cleanse and change and transform and convert. That's what Luther discovered in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It was a doctrine that he came to rely on and see as the central chief article of the faith, the article on which the church either stands or falls because only such a strong doctrine of justification such a strong understanding of grace can deal with such a virulent doctrine of sin. Now, one more thing I want to mention here while we're still in Romans, and that is Luther's understanding of humility. You know, he comes to understand, I've I've got to let loose of myself. I'm never going to make myself pleasing to God. I'm never going to do enough. I'm never going to confess enough. I'm never going to pray enough. I'm never going to give enough alms. I've got to let loose of myself. It was just at this time that he was beginning to read some of the mystical literature of the late Middle Ages. In fact, the first book Luther ever published in 1516 was an edition of what was called the Theologia Deutsch, the German theology. It was mainly the sermons of Johannes Tauler and a German mystic. Now, Luther is often not called a mystic because in some ways he was not a mystic. He, he uses this mystical theology, I would call it scaffolding, on which to stand as he builds a cathedral. When the cathedral is built, the scaffolding goes down. You don't need to keep that up there. That's the way mystical theology worked for Luther. It was a means by which he came to build something, to understand something theologically, the doctrine of justification. Once he came to that full understanding, the scaffolding went down. But he did learn something from the mystics that he kept with him. And that was this notion, a German word, Gelassenheit. It's like Anfechtungen. It's really hard to translate into English. Gelassenheit means to let loose, to let go, to to let loose of yourself. And we stand before God without any merits of our own. That's Gelassenheit. And Luther comes to see that this is absolutely essential if we're going to ever come into a true knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us in his saving work on the cross. And that even means that we have to be willing to resign ourselves into the hands of God. And the language for this in the mystical literature was resignation to damnation, to hell, resignatio ad infernos. Luther talks about this in his commentary on Romans, uh, chapters 9 to 11. Uh, Now, you know, it it could easily be distorted uh, because Luther understands that God is rescuing us from that. But the purpose of salvation, hear me, the purpose of salvation is to glorify God. And at the end of the ages, at the end of the day, we will take all of our crowns and throw them down before the feet of Jesus Christ and we'll say, praise be to him, hallelujah to the lamb who sits on the throne. That's what Luther was getting at. It's not, it's not just about ourselves. It's this delicious despair that leads us to Jesus Christ and to his cross. And that's the other element in Romans, a theology of the cross. There was a theology of glory, Luther called it, in the Middle Ages, which talked about all of the attributes that we can bring and mention about God, his greatness, his power, his transcendence, all of which are true. But God does not reveal himself, the naked God, Luther will later say, does not reveal himself to us in his glory and his power. Because if he did, we'd be obliterated. Who can stand? How does God come to us? God comes to us in a squirming baby in a manger, in a dying man on a cross. It's Jesus Christ from first to last. Luther says, you know, you know, I wish I was God. 
I wish I was God because if I were God, you know what I'd do? Luther said. He said, I'd call the devil in on the carpet and I would eat his lunch. He didn't say that, but that's my interpretation. (laughs) I would give him what for? And I would squish him into the floor like a bug. If I were God, I would do that to old Satan. But you know, Luther says, God is amazing. You know what God does? He shows up one Christmas in Bethlehem as a mewling, puking baby. Luther did say that. As a mewling, puking baby, squirming in a manger, and all hell trembles. That's God's way of doing it. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the greatest verse in the Bible that gets at the heart of what the Christian faith is about that Luther understood as well. Well, I know I'm out of time. I'm always out of time, but uh, there is tomorrow. There is a tomorrow. And so tomorrow I'm going to continue this in a little different vein, talk a little bit more uh, about what the Reformation really means today. But I don't want to dismiss you before bringing you back to Luther's fundamental insight The gracious nature of God revealed in Jesus Christ, justified by faith alone, apart from any works of the law, anything we can do or contribute. And the real God, the real God is not the God who comes in glory, but the God who comes in a manger and on the cross. It's that God who can save us and redeem us. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.